on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. Which is what I would be saying if we weren't doing a best of OBS this week, and it's actually just me. So, podcast only this week as we reshare three of our team's favorite segments from the past year. And when I say past year, we're including 2019 in that, because 2020 was, well, because it was 2020. We've got the original Shirley Verrett Hall of Fame induction with Matt Cummings. We'll take another look at our James Dara interview before he got huge. And our Mother's Day special as well, introduced by Ashley Hardgrave. Before we get to the show, a little bit of sports talk. College Bulls, forget it. I have not watched a single minute of college football this year out of principle. No Michigan Wolverines. It didn't help that they were dreadful. No Northwestern Wildcats. It didn't help that they were amazing. College athletes should not be playing this year. I have watched some of the NFL. My Bears on the cusp of making the playoffs. Here's what's ironic. One game left to go in the NFL season. The Bears are 8-7 and seven and on the bubble. The Washington football team, 6-9, and nine, likely to make it. That is how weak the NFC East is. All right, let's talk some opera. Back in the days when the OBS was on terrestrial radio at WNUR, and we still are on WNUR, you can listen to our show pre-recorded every Monday, 9 p.m. Central on 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago, and streaming WNUR.org. Matt Cummings, in those lovely days, inducted Shirley Verrett into the OBS Hall of Fame. He said it was one of the voices that he has ever fallen the most head over heels in love with. A tremendously long career and resume with a number of important debuts. And here's our segment on Shirley Verrett getting inducted into the OBS HOF. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera.
And that was a lovely little clip. Uh, Matt, what was what was that? So that was the card aria from uh, Act Three of Carmen. Uh, that it, and we are listening to a little bit of my absolute, possibly my absolute favorite singer of all time today, which is the mezzo soprano Shirley Verrett. Oh, and nice. I I asked a couple weeks ago if I could do a segment about Shirley Verrett because uh, Black History Month has not gotten off to a great start in the United States, <laughs> but with um, oh. the entire state of Virginia <laughs> as it is. Uh, and she is important not only because of the trails she blazed musically, but because she uh, is kind of overlooked as sort of a civil rights icon. And I think that mm. that, that is some attention that, that she deserves. Uh, so just a little bit of bio. She was born in uh, in a highly religious family in New Orleans in 1931, but mostly raised out in California. Uh, she actually didn't pursue music first. She was working as a real estate agent and realized that she was so bored selling houses that she had to follow her passions against the wishes of her family and go into podcasting. Opera. Yeah, <laughs> more specifically, opera podcasting. Uh, and to me, she's like one of the absolute original Mavericks because she did everything. She she did everything. She sang. Uh, she sang roles that were mezzo soprano. She sang roles that were dramatic soprano. She sang roles that were dramatic coloratura soprano. Uh, really, anything that she felt fit her voice, she decided to to put on. Uh, and it, it's a spicy voice. It's passionate. It's versatile. But it always <laughs> remains human. Uh, and. Uh, she is fairly well recorded in some respects because for a while she had an exclusive contract with RCA, which was one of the really big record labels. Sure. Uh, and she was an RCA artist along with Leontine Price and Anamofo and uh, Montserrat Caballé. Uh, and they're actually the RCA recording of um, Unbalo and Mascara has uh, Verrett, Price, and Riri Grist, three principal African-American singers in the, t- in the leading roles, which in the 60s was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, one, one studio recording that we don't have of hers is Carmen, and that's because RCA had already recorded it with Leontine Price, and when they wouldn't do it with her, she decided to leave the label. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, that means, and she did work as, she worked as a free st- uh, freelance recording artist, but that means that uh, one of the other portrayals of hers, which is just absolutely stunning, that exists only in this weird YouTube video from somewhere in Europe, I want to say Belgium, uh, so <laughs> they're, they're already looking at me because they know what's coming up, is her Mneris. There's no studio oh, recording, yeah. there's no complete recording of her Mneris. Uh, and let, let's listen to a little bit of a clip of the judgment scene because it is absolutely volcanic. It's, it's one of the best things on the internet. So during that entire clip, I was waiting for uh, Matt to give me the signal to fade it out, and he just like, no, sing, just a little more, bit more, one more, one more. more. I, I put together like a three and a half minute clip of this judgment <laughs> scene because I couldn't cut it down anymore, and I it ha- was I had to make good. some tough choices just yeah. now. Yeah, uh, but you, may, I, mean, I just want to put a pin in this for a second because you made me think of something, and maybe this is like the inherent racism that we're not even acknowledging. Madam Butterfly was recorded in RCA with 
Lansing Price. And also on Amalfo. They made two, they made like a light butterfly and a heavy yeah. butterfly. So but how come, is that a double standard? You know, that they recorded the same work twice in the same, was it the same decade probably, you know? Hmm. I, it, it very well could be. And I and I think there, there's kind of a, there, there is sort of a, uh, a refrain that comes through that I think they were mostly worried about. And, and actually Shirley Verrett talks in her memoir, which is called I Never Walked Alone. And I was I was reading some of it to, to research for the segment, and it's fascinating because she's very candid, much more <laughs> candid than people usually are in these singer biographies. But she part of the reason um, that that she was put into this rivalry with Grace Bumbry, another African American dr- dramatic mezzo soprano around the same time, was because they were both really worried that they that the opera world wasn't going to let there be too big African American mezzo sopranos. Mm. And I I think that they're they're could be something to that or the fact that they didn't want i i think that the main that rca didn't want the the leontine price carmen to suffer by putting yeah. out another one yeah. with, with you know that would have been seen as being in the same vein and that's really all of our loss yeah then grace bumbry yeah, got the amneris yeah on the rca with leontine price, exactly so. uh and what you can hear in that is it, it's a complex portrayal and it really shines in the video it's like totally over the top acting but but you can hear that just like volcano of emotions. <laughs> it, it's her voice is like a waterfall. It really hits you right in the right yeah, in but, the old chest. But she also she just wasn't afraid with like if her voice was gonna break. Like no, she just went for everything. And more often than not, it did not break. It she had all the technique to back up her dramatic expression, which is sometimes shocking to hear. Yeah. Like she's going for it in that way. And it, she gets it. It's and like, it's not the most uniform voice in the yeah. whole world, but she, but it, it does exactly what she tells it to. And we're going yeah. to hear that a lot in the clip that I picked for next, which <laughs> okay. is uh, from the Claudio Abado recording of Macbeth that she made in the mid-70s. And this is a, a portion of the sleepwalking scene. <laughs> And so Lady Macbeth is maybe her most iconic role. It was, it, it, you know, it came about 15 years into her career. But uh, there's a really famous production of it that, from La Scala uh, that's on YouTube that was like one of her absolute crowning moments. Uh, and she talks about it in her memoir and it, and it gets about four pages just talking about how she got inside the character and tried to bring out the Shakespearean drama. And frankly, I've never heard a recording that sounds better than that. There are so many terrible recordings of Lady Macbeth out there because it is such a, it's a sing and a half and no one really knows if it's a mezzo role or if it's a soprano role and it has like more than a two octave range and you have to do runs and you have to do leaps and you have to do high quiet notes and you have to do loud high notes and it's just everywhere and she does all of it better than anyone else. Uh, and what, but what, uh, what attracts me in that clip is her flexibility of phrasing and the way she's able to turn her tone in on a dime. Uh, right. to, uh, and especially since it's a scene about sleepwalking and about going crazy, it's really effective. Yeah. Uh, 
and that's partially I think that 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 just shows how much of a daredevil and a maverick she was. She was a uh, both as a singer and as an artist. She tackled whatever role she wanted to, uh, including it, it at the Metropolitan Opera when she sang both Cassandra and Dido in a performance <laughs> of Les Troyens, the uh, the Trojans, uh, which it. is about a five and a half act a five and a half hour long opera uh, and that means that she was on stage for almost the entire time no one does that Ab- absolutely not no on one purpose does that. They don't yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she could sing these big heroic things like you've heard but also she could war- she could make her voice really warm and become like this uh, the, have this really sultry uh, sultry tone like when she played uh, Delilah and, be- mm. and that's because she's a storyteller and let's listen to a little bit of her clip of Mon Cœur It just, just the way that she goes all the way up to the top with that full voice and then pair, scales it back for the for the repeat in that in that last phrase of it. I, I and I've never heard such a, such a sexy descending chromatic. She scale. does the same thing in the Veil song in yeah. Don Carlo. And I, Ooh, I, I, yeah. I know that's probably not one of your clips, but I tried really hard to find room for it, but yeah. I already have about fifteen <laughs> clips of her. Not an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that. that uh, and you should listen to both all of the Veil song and all of Odon Fatale because once the, it's another role that I, I don't think there are many people out there who sing it better than Shirley Verrett. Um, and one one uh, recording of hers that I really fell in love with was the one that she the uh, Anna Bolena that she made with uh, with Beverly Sills. Beverly Sills and Julius Rudell conducting, uh, and where she plays Jane Seymour and she played a lot of those second well, second lady roles in mm. uh, in bel canto operas. Uh, and I think it's because the tessitura was really friendly to her. It was generally a little bit a little bit lower than the than the leading lady, but also a little bit higher and showier than most mezzo soprano roles or like really contralto roles. And I there's this one clip of the the end of the Jane the big Jane Seymour aria where she's confessing to to Henry that that she feels terrible about what she's doing to to Anna Bolena. And uh, I just the way that she holds out the penultimate note in this at the end of this clip is so exciting. And even if it's a little bit indulgent, I just do not care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shall we indulge you with another clip? Here we go.
it just lasts for like one split second more than you think it's going to. And then that portamento down to the final note yeah. is it's just so yeah. it that's the reason why Belcanto like makes my blood pump because it can be so formulaic but when you have someone there who can just like turn the dial a little bit and bend time and and bring you with her it it works it it just it does yeah it's um, not mozart everybody no like, yeah you got to sing it yeah <laughs> and that boldness to make a, a really um touching segue that boldness is not just she didn't save it for the stage she was outspoken in her life almost to a fault uh, and her initial career as a as an African American mezzo soprano coming of age in the late fifties uh, was obviously limited due to segregation. But she uh, refused to put herself in situations where she felt disrespected, and she stood up for herself when she did feel disrespected. She, uh, when she was singing in the South, she would not uh, go to any accommodations that were segregated venues. Hmm. Uh, she wouldn't perform for people who were going to have segregated audiences. She refused to sing in apartheid South Africa, even though they, uh, they, they offered her a very lucrative concert deal to kind of come and show people that maybe it wasn't as bad as people were saying. <laughs> but, but she, you know, she stood by her principles. She stood up for herself and uh, really... Um, gave a really frank interview t- about all the bigotry that she faced in in the opera world uh, to Opera News in 1976, which is you know most of uh, plenty of people in their school are like okay Civil Rights Act in 1965 and that ended racism, uh, but she <laughs> was still you know she was still out there talking about this when people didn't necessarily want to hear it. Uh, and that op- that interview in, in Opera News came from came came on the heels of a performance uh, at the Metropolitan Opera in uh, a revival of uh, L'Assedio di Corinto, the the Siege of Corinth, and uh, that was the, the opera that Beverly Sills premiered at the Met. And but uh, a lot of the press for it made it sound like Shirley Verrett stole the show because of the end of this aria. And this is going to be clip number eight on my list. Got to scroll down for that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> here we go.
And I kept a little bit of the ovation yeah. on that clip because apparently it went on for over two minutes after she oh, was done. That Capoletta is relentless, and she did not take a break. There's yeah. options there where you could just like, I'm going to sit this measure out. Yeah. She kept going. She added those high notes. She had a trill. There was articulation in the coloratura. It's like, what is going on? And it's not often that you get someone with that much voice yeah. who can move yeah. it that fast. Yeah. Uh, and that just speaks to her incredible versatility. Uh, and I actually want to end with a quote of that, she, one that she wrote at the end, of, uh, a quote that she put at the end of her book, which is she says, my legacy, as far as I'm concerned, may be that I've always been more versatile than uh, many other singers. I came up with it before I read that, but it's still true. Uh, <laughs> my career would have been a lot easier if I had followed only this path or that path, but I couldn't. I did it my way. You can't be perfect. You can only do what you can do. And then you let it rest. And so if we can have her take us home with a little bit with a little clip of her singing, uh, you'll never walk alone from the revival of Carousel that she did on Broadway, because honestly, what couldn't this woman do? <laughs> when you walk through a storm, keep your chin up high and don't be afraid of the dark at the end. The storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, for your dreams Back in 2019, Oliver Camacho and OBS host Emeritus Tobias Wright went to the Opera Philadelphia Festival, the O Festival, where they interviewed director James Dara. How prescient was that? Because of his background, not only in opera, but also in film, he has become, in the pandemic, perhaps one of the go-to creative artists mixing those two genres. And if you don't think that film, having entered into the aesthetics of opera, is ever going to leave, you've got another thing coming. Film is now going to be so ingrained, in my opinion, in the opera art form, it's going to be hard to divorce those two. Not impossible, and not perhaps unnecessary at times. But I think we need to make our peace with the fact that film and opera have a lot to share with one another as both art forms are pushed forward. Basically, in other words, we made James Dara's career all because he was on our show in September. Check it out. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. That's what you're listening to. You're listening to Opera Box Score. And Oliver, who are we going inside the huddle with today? So director James Dara uh, was the director of the world premiere of Missy Mazzoli's 
Breaking the Waves Love for it. Opera Philadelphia. Uh, something that we can all watch is his direction of the music video that he created for um, Joyce Donato for her In War and Peace album a couple of years ago, the aria Lasha Kyopianga. Uh, I just saw his production of Semele, which was uh, revived at the O Festival last weekend, and I loved it. And uh, he is also now the artistic director of what's called the One Festival, O-N-E Festival, which sort of is an offshoot of um, Opera Omaha. And their mission is to build innovative work and storytelling around the power of opera using multidisciplinary performance installations, conversations, and explorations. And we'll begin the conversation talking about one festival. Rather than just coming in every year to do a production, um, kind of thinking about how, how can a place that's literally in the middle of the country um, in a pretty amazing, robust city and, um, and a surprising city mm-hmm. um, that has great audience and patron support, how can we create something that is not just another opera festival yeah. and isn't just me bringing in people to do productions of operas or me doing a whole bunch of productions of operas over and over, but how can we make something that is contributing to the form, but make something that also is, I was really interested in, in being a place that could be like an outlet for like people that I meet, especially singers that have ideas for productions and things, but those never come to fruition because they're often singing roles and they're, you know, they're traveling into things that have been programmed for two, three, four or five years. And that really took off. And we started that two years ago and we're going into the third year of the one festival. Um, and it's, it's, I'm really trying to position it and and this will actually evolve even further. Um, in the coming years, we'll announce how it's going to change a little bit. I want it to be a place where we're making the work that artists who, even if they are a designer or a singer mm-hmm. and they have an idea to direct a show or create, um, you know, create something that maybe is just outside the normal, like we're doing a new world premiere production of mm-hmm. an opera in a proscenium. How can we think beyond that? Yeah. So it's really even taking, taking existing off. repertoire. Yeah. And, yeah. No, I yeah. Or we're taking people like I. We just had Ellen Reed there last year, um, who's a good friend of mine and an amazing uh, composer. And she had written this opera Prism that I had done the world premiere for at LA Opera. We took it to prototype with Beth Morrison Projects, the producer, um, uh, in January of this year. And um, I was super interested in her voice. And she was like, I want to make a sound installation adult-sized playground that all makes sound that is played by percussionists with a 12-minute opera that we're going to world premiere for that instrument. And that went into an art gallery. And, you know, it was, like, not a normal experience. Um, But it was great because then you have this uh, formidable composer there creating something that is so much uh, outside of a normal scope of like sit in a dark theater for two hours. Um, And then we also did productions of opera. So the goal is to kind of, you know, certainly do good productions and maybe productions that take a lot of risk um, of either, you know, rethinking standard rep or lesser done um, repertoire, but also to do events and experiences that maybe tug a little bit at the boundaries of, how opera can intersect with things like dance, with um, I was film, just going to ask that with, question. Yeah. What, what type of disciplines are being nurtured over there? Yeah, so this year we did, I mean, we kind of, we had this installation piece, so we were intersecting with the art world, which is like a whole learning curve, mm-hmm. right, for a lot of opera people. Like, yeah. you know, the minute you put something in an empty white room in a gallery, yeah. like, what is that? And what does that look like? And how do you think of sound in that mm-hmm. environment? Um, we did an entire film series of... Um, explorations of how film scoring impacts 
uh, you know, cinema, but also um, looked at like different ways in which um, maybe a live overture or a live score to a silent film can alter your perception of what you're watching. And um, that was curated by Ross Carr of, of International Contemporary Ensemble, who we bring out, who's there the whole time for the festival. And um, and then we did a dance piece t- um, to music by Kate Bush, and we actually got the rights um, from her publisher to like use this piece and um, rethink sort of how the rehearsal process via using dancers and one opera singer. And then we did a Philip Glass piece, and we did uh, Liliana Blaine Cruz did a new production of Faust. So it was our more that was in our the large theater that we use and um, was beautiful. So you know, kind of incredibly yeah. eclectic. But it's, I mean, I'm hearing all these things. I'm now I'm wondering when in your formative years as an artist did you see something that just blew your mind and said, Oh my god, I didn't realize that was possible. Like what work or what artist I think it was different it was different things at different times. Like I didn't really get interested in opera until I was in you know, finishing an MFA in like theater and film school. Okay. Um, so I had spent all of my like, you know, initial years in college and even before that, sort of realizing like, oh, I I may be interested in like visual art or I'm interested in acting or performance or you know, I was way more into theater. So there were definitely junction like junctures for me of. Uh, Greek drama, seeing you know an archival video of something, seeing um, just things that you learn in theater history, like mm-hmm. Peter Brook's amazing Midsummer Night's Dream that was so pivotal. You know these sort of now I think like oh yeah everybody that's like a titan of of work and uh, and, and a really pivotal moment in theater history. But sort of discovering those things and then digging deeper into mm-hmm. a lot of uh, mythology and different Greek drama, and then I got into like uh, the sort of French playwrights and and just kind of finding that interest in narrative story was the first part. And I, one of my first professional jobs ever was in Croatia, weirdly. Um, I had, one of my teachers had been the intendant of the National Theater and he invited me for a summer to go work there. And one of my first assignments was on a production of Nabucco by Verdi. And I was like, I don't want to work on the opera. Like, Mm Do I really? And <laughs> that opera is so hard to stage. It's, it's just so, so hard, much but chorus. they did it outside, which <laughs> yeah. was really cool. So it was okay. like outside, and and there was also a production of Don Giovanni, and then there was a dance piece that involved some like uh, classical music mm-hmm. at the same time in this festival. They did a Tennessee Williams play, and there was something about all of those things existing in one place, but also me being exposed to opera in the, for the first time. Yeah. Um, in this, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Nabucco came in on a horse in the production I was working yeah. on. Like, it was very, <laughs> like, it was it was very well staged, but um, definitely opulent in terms of uh, me realizing, like, oh, wow, the orchestra, like, seeing how there in Nabucco, like, if you have good singers, and, you know, it was kind of thrilling to be outside, and there, I got kind of... I. I found it incredibly intriguing the mixture of all of those elements together because I'd loved to design also and like um, and oh my God, there's so many questions yeah <laughs> no, no, keep going, keep going. but no but I, I I think it was that like and that's what I mean like I wasn't I didn't just flip a switch and suddenly go like oh I love opera I'm gonna direct it yeah. for years like it was just this kind of gradual thing and then and then I I always like to joke that um, you know Patrice Chereau who I think is um, who was one of the greatest opera directors um, who also had done a lot of film and I had really been into film and film history and 
I, when I found his work and I watched, there's an archival of his Cosy from Aix en Provence, and there's a, you know, I, he was still making work at that time, so it had been announced that he was going to do Janacek from the House of the Dead at the Met mm-hmm. with Solon and conducting. And I went to see that. And at that point, I was kind of like interested in opera, but I didn't know that I was going to want to direct a lot of it mm-hmm. or, or figure it out. And I remember watching that and just thinking how incredibly detailed, you know, it was incredibly visual, um, which I loved. But, but there was something more in, in being able to unearth performances from singers that felt for the first time to me like I was back in an acting studio course in theater school. Like, the, you know, realizing that opera singers actually are superhuman actors when they're good. Yeah. You know, and that was like a huge revelation because I think I had always thought like opera singers are just going to stand there and sing at me. And to see like that a director could craft performances that told me a story and like there were some beautiful performances in that piece, you know, and incredibly detailed and nuanced and small and in a way that almost weren't, you know, I wish I, I was just visiting from LA, but I wish I had been able to see it multiple times. And I, I really credit that as sort of an aha moment for me of, of, you know, maybe all the things I loved about Tennessee Williams or rich, you know, sort of American theater, maybe I can apply some of those things to opera. Mm-hmm. You know, the things, the spectacle that I loved of Greek theater was already in opera. Yeah, you know? I was inspired by that. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about, um, you know, your attraction to Patrice Chereau and your kind of love of design. Yeah, and- I joke he was my mentor by proxy or like, yeah. Like, I never met him, which is, yeah. like, heartbreaking to me. Yeah. But I I really felt like, you know, because then I went and I watched some of his early, like, French movies. And I, I would watch archival videos. And then um, the last thing that actually the Met did posthumously, uh, his Electra, mm-hmm. um, was totally devastating and beautiful. And mm-hmm. I just think it taught me a lot about um, not designing your way out of directing a scene, you know, that aesthetic and design has always been important to me or like the way the way that things um feel and look and behave and what the world is is important but that it was a good lesson to never rely on those things to do the work of what a director needs to do with a cast yeah well i, I want to take this opportunity to pivot to something that all of our audience can experience of uh, your work uh, which is the video you did with joyce di donato of lasha yeah. kiopianga yeah which uh, I think speaks to a lot of what we're just talking about. I mean, like, she is a stage beast, and that video is so heartbreaking. Oh, and awesome. it's so yeah. beautiful. And, like, every image feels uh, organic, you know, uh, with that work, which is a very high Baroque, you know. Uh, yeah. It doesn't... Really... Yeah, an iconic song. I mean, that's yeah. harder than it would seem, right? To, yeah. Like, what are we, we going to do with this? Um, yeah, I was, I was really impressed with how... Um, you know, Joyce definitely, uh, we got connected via mutual friend and started thinking about that video to help launch her album in war and peace. In war and peace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I was really, um, I really admire the, the social activism part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but she also, we talked a lot about what the story was of that aria Mm -hmm. and wanting to maybe, um, do something with it that, that was able to be enjoyed by anybody regardless yeah. of where they are in the world but and which meant that it needed a certain simplicity just to have a kind of universal sort of human component but 
when we started shooting, I was really amazed because, you know, that was, that was like completely insane in terms of, there was like one day she was available and it had to be in Santa Fe. (laughs) And like, like I was getting my team together and I mean, I know I won't bore you with all the details. No, but I, those are the when details you think of, of yeah, <laughs> but like when you think of like like oh, and then they shot a nice music video yeah. in Santa Fe, and it's like you have to get permits. Like we had yeah. to get a fire permit, which only came through at the last minute, so we weren't sure we were going to be able to release this thing in time. Yeah. Like it was really there were there were things that were crazy. I mean, it was never like stressful in a bad way yeah. necessarily, but it was just kind of amazing to like we flew a whole crew, you know, a crew of I say a whole crew, it was like four of us, but mm-hmm. um working on this, but like you know, my cinematographer and editor and then um I brought my lighting designer who does stage shows with me started in film. So he has an amazing resume of like working in film uh lighting different things for different cinematographers that I admire. And so I was like you're going to come light this music video for me. And so we had, like picked mm-hmm up gear that we got shipped to the opera and I was like driving this giant SUV into the middle of nowhere where we found this movie ranch. This thing, it's like it was like yeah. crazy. The and thing about it is that like I'm agoraphobic so the idea of prison being a space that's just you know wide open like yeah. that is perfect for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was fun. It was like really it was really fun working with Joyce because she had she had some ideas but I think also let us really you know, play with like where it was going to be and what it, what it was going to be like. And, you know, I remember sending her the rough cut and she was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think that was me. Like when she first appears, you know, like he, Adam Larson, who, who photographed it really, um, and shot it really knew we had all this equipment in this cabin for the camera and the rest of it was really simple. And that was kind of intentional. I was like, we're not going to drag a bunch of props and sets and all these things like, I think you should, you Joyce should be able to tell this story. And she felt the same way. And I think really, um, delivers on camera, something that feels like sensitive and, and interesting. And that was kind of my first like opera music video experience. Mm-hmm. Like I could kind of had thought the whole thing would work, um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing when you get into those things, how, like even when things go wrong, they're sometimes for a reason. So yeah. like we didn't get the original location we wanted um, because you have to like permit that and get a, you know rights and make because you're going to be releasing it on a, like a international label. Like you have mm-hmm. to kind of do all these steps. And my production manager that I work with, Michelle Magaldi, who's also at LA Opera and is amazing, she made all these phone calls, and I remember her calling me and going, oh, well, I got you this entire village. It was like an entire <laughs> abandoned movie ranch yeah. in the middle of New Mexico. And she was like, I got it, and it's like less than half of what yeah. we were prepared to spend. Like, this guy just basically, she just talked to him on the phone, and he was like, yeah, you can come shoot here. And so Joyce and I were like running around. I have photos of her in the jail, you know, yeah. in the like western town jail, and like her and her partner in the saloon. And like we were just going like, it was kind of very eerie. It was like being in an episode of Westworld. I was going to say know? Westworld. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it definitely it definitely had that feeling. But um, but it was fun. And then I, you know, now I'm, I'm talking about it, I'm remembering things like she had all of her Vivian Westwood gowns with her, which are in these like incredible and bags. And she had her own makeup designer. And, right? le- and yeah. left them in my trunk. Oh. So like she left the next day and I get this message that's like, oh, I think all my gowns are in your rental car. It's <laughs> like, you know, which is like, then you feel, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm holding like Joyce Dudonato's Vivian Westwood custom couture gowns. Like, <laughs> I remember going to like the FedEx and I was like, you need to like really take care of these. And they were like, what's the value? I was like, doesn't, doesn't apply. Like, you you know, just get these to, I forget she was going to Kansas city, maybe home for a little bit or something, but yeah, it was fun. 
This is a good place to kind of pivot to one last topic, um, which is how your aesthetic lines up very well with early music and with new music. And um, there are singers who I know who definitely have that same quality. And I'm trying to figure out what makes you the person that's right for these extremes of the repertoire. I don't know. I'm I'm just drawn to those extremes. Um, musically, dramatically, I find them interesting. But They're I think, less formulaic, maybe, for you? I think so. And I think there's a lot more freedom for a director. Mm-hmm. And there's also more to be... There's, you can unearth things that maybe go against what people expect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people see simile all the time. And this aesthetically is very, like, in this kind of imagined world. You know, it's opulent and it's very beautiful. It doesn't, it's not modern. It's not, it, there, there's modern components to it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's illuminating something else. And... I guess I'm just interested in pieces like that. I mean, not that I haven't done things that have had modern dress or been set today, but the worlds I'm far more interested in abstraction as an idea to convey things that are beyond just what maybe is in a synopsis that you read. You know, it's why I always laugh now. I'm like, I don't, I don't write, I hate director's notes. I hate it. I hate this idea that the director is like writing what their intent, you know, intentions were. I'm like, maybe process is more interesting. So I started just being like, maybe we talk to the designers about how they actually do these things and what is their life like when they're creating something I'm way more interested in somebody maybe, especially with Handel, where it, you get some of the more popular Handel operas people have seen, you can do things with them directorially because the text is basically just endless poetry, right? Like repeated sections of poetic text that are n- narrative in the sense of like thoughts of characters are continuing, but they're not, it's not like Reset that's driving the whole thing forward. That gives you this flexibility to illuminate things that can challenge people or be exciting. And, you know, I'd rather the the worst ever to me would be somebody coming to like a Handel opera or even a world premiere and being like complacent and being like, oh, yeah, it was good. You know, <laughs> like I'm way more interested in this that people are like dance has no place in opera, you know, or whatever, yeah. like <laughs> challenging those expectations of what you think you're going to get from like a Handel's simile is, mm. I think, the reason that it's something that's hundreds of years old can still feel interesting today. And I'm about to go to Vienna to do another Handel opera and I have like a Handel. I'm doing this um, Handel opera that of course every, uh, all of your listeners know called Justino. Um, It's not often done. It's a gorgeous piece, but, um, but the designer of that, Adam Rigg and I talked and, and we were kind of inspired by like the sixties sort of desert culture, like Joshua tree, this Mm. sort of like California desert of the sixties. And, um, and so that's a story of this like hero who is unlikely. And so he's created this amazing set. That's like a very almost David Lynch, dreamy, weird 1960s desert motel room. And all of the, cause you have to deal with all these Handelian things. Like there's a sea monster that attacks them. Then there's a bear that's chasing somebody. And, you know, and so, suddenly setting it in this kind of weird hotel room. It's like all of these surreal things can happen within that, you know, that the sea monster can come out of the bathtub a la The Shining or Kubrick or something. Like those things are obviously like always swirling around in my head, but I just thought like, oh, for this piece, like this, this can bring out a lot of like dark surrealism that's Mm -hmm. already in the piece, this fantastical quality of these, these sort of um, mythological stories and mm-hmm. Greek and Roman stories, like we can bring that out in an interesting way. And the similar here was the same thing, like to to do things that are provocative and bold and not just pretty. James Darrow, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good to talk. In May of this year, Ashley Hardgrave, one of our co-hosts, had the magnificent idea to put together a Mother Day special in which she talked to seven artists and administrators who navigated partnership at parenting while at the top of their operatic game. Here's Ashley for more. 2020 was, well, it was. I don't have to tell you about the challenges it brought to all of us because you were there too. But for OBS, 2020 did have some great highlights. We moved to the big leagues in joining the Dallas Opera Network. It was my first full year on the roster after being picked up from the minors in 2019. And we had some pretty incredible interviews. Among my favorites uh, were the ones from episode 215 in May of this year was our Mother's Day Spectacular, where we took a look at opera artists navigating the world of the art while building partnership and being a parent. We spoke of spaces in which they were welcome, ones where they were not, and learned about the highs and lows of their journeys. In this final clip from that episode, we hear from opera singers Janai Brugger, Juliet Petrus, Brenda Ray, and Laura Strickling, conductor Lydia Yankovskaya, the executive director of Long Beach Opera, Jennifer Rivera, and the executive director of Opera Atelier, Alexandra Scotulis. We learn their stories, how they make it work, and what advice they'd give to others in the industry who may also be considering a similar path. OBS wants to bring you advice for those considering these paths. Here is what these women have to offer. Oh yeah, I mean, I whenever I speak to young kids, you'll be surprised that that's one of the first things I get asked is how do you balance or how do you have a child and a husband and, and do this career. And like I said, I think you just, it's finding the right kind of balance that works for you. You know, I can't compare my trajectory and my path to Sarah or any of my other colleagues that have kids because everybody's different. Um, it was about having support. I had a lot of family support and help, thankfully. Um, my son came with me everywhere and, you know, and until they're two, the they're free, so that helped <laughs> with costs. Um, my husband traveled uh, as a lot to come see us and be with us, so we never went more than a week at that time when he was born, uh, being apart. And and that was because he was teaching, so it was easier for him to have that flexibility. In and some people they don't have that, so it just like I said depends. And my manager was super, super, super supportive. Um, it's good to have somebody in your corner in the industry that can negotiate your contracts, take care of all that stressful stuff so that you to make it as easy as possible. So just have surrounding yourself with your network of people that have your best interest at hand, support you, encourage you, finding your balance and anything is possible as long as you do the work and you want it. There really is no one path toward it. Um, there are women who have kind of solidified their professional life first and then attempted to add a personal life. And then there are people who have, you know, found the, the personal, you know, partner life first and then attempted to grow their professional life. And then there are people, maybe I think I might even put myself in that middle category who's trying to do it at the same time, but it's never exactly at the same time. It's always one kind of takes the lead and the other one hangs back a little bit and then they switch. It's sort of like 
you know, they're just constantly edging forward, hopefully, but at different paces. Um, be okay with the fact that your path to being a professional musician and also a mother is may not look like anybody else's. Um, and in that, not comparing your path to anybody else's. I guess I wish I had known that it's okay not to have a perfect plan. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to stay open because you can, you can try to, you can imagine what your life is going to look like, but you have to stay open because everything's going to be different when you're actually experiencing it. And I think we, we did, my family has done a good job of shifting into that mindset. Like, okay, this is not working for us. Let's do it differently. Um, but my advice, there's never a perfect time to start the family, but there are better times. You know, everyone has told me, Oh, there's never a perfect time. So just go ahead and have kids. And I'm like, that's true. This is true. But but there are certain roles you definitely don't want to have to cancel. And there are certain roles that you don't want to cancel, but you are okay with canceling. Like that happened with me. I had to cancel a Lucia in Munich and a Sabinetta at La Scala. And it's like, that's really painful. But I can give those up because they weren't going to ruin my career by not doing them. Um, and also, I think um, I was very lucky to have things after the birth of my children, like contracts that came and I knew they were going to happen because if you don't have anything after a birth of a child, sometimes it can be really difficult to start up again. And it's sure. not always possible to have that future plan, to have those future contracts. But if you are able to, it, it, it'll it give you a lot less of a headache and a lot less stress in your life. I would say ultimate flexibility, like because every singing situation is different. Um you never know if it's going to be easy to bring your kid or if it's going to be hard to bring your kid. You never know if it's going to be financially um, feasible to bring your, your child. Um, sometimes the housing is just too expensive if you have to bring your child. I have wanted to bring my child on some gigs and not been able to because I couldn't afford to. It was cheaper to leave her at home uh, and um, been away from her for three weeks just because I couldn't financially bring her along. Um, so just being flexible, understanding that mom guilt is real and never goes away and learning to live with that guilt and, and accept it and understand that everyone lives life differently and everyone has their own normal. So my kids normal is that sometimes mommy's gone um, and we find ways to connect when I am gone. Um, and as long as I feel like she is you know, still healthy and happy and knows that she is loved and safe. Um, that, that helps a little bit with the mom guilt, but it does not go away. <laughs> uh, it's what it is, but you know, just kind of knowing that your normal is your normal and, and you don't have to compete with anyone. I think for singers in general, like I think the moment you realize you're not competing with anyone else ever for anything, it's just doing what you want to do uh, because it fulfills your artistic needs and, and you feel like it's bringing joy to the world and, and your audience and you're making a difference. Um, you know, that's, that all feeds into that. <laughs> I negotiated the travel and the time changes and the no sleep by making, not making myself a priority any longer um, and not getting all uptight about it. 
you know, it, it's funny before you have a child, you know, your voice is like your child in a certain way. And you're like nurturing this instrument and it's, you, it's hard to focus on anything outside of that. Um, and then you have this person outside your body that like needs you and you realize that that is not as important as you thought it was before. Um, and so I didn't care if I got sick. I didn't, all I cared about was that he was good and healthy and happy and for me, that made me sing better, perform better, and just be a better human. My main piece of advice is actually not about how to travel and how to alter your life and stuff. It's that if you're thinking about having a kid and you're not sure that you can do it because of your arts career, I think you should do it because you'll figure out a way and it really will make you like understand your own self as an artist better. Because you, you, you get outside of yourself in a way that you haven't experienced before. So, I mean, not that people who don't have children are not great artists, but I'm, I just think, especially for people who are, you know, who have, have a lot of stress and worry about their, their, themselves as artists, I think that um, having a child can, can alleviate some of that in a certain way because you have another thing to focus on. For anyone, the advice would be to really look out for um, arts um, organizations like try try to get yourself into an arts organization that is um, accepting and welcoming and um, welcomes families. And I think you can you can you can you know it's a small industry. We can we can we know what's happening in other places. And, and I think just having like conversations with people and learning about the places where you might feel that is a good and supportive place for you to be. So um, that's one thing. Um, you know, doing some planning is another, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just jump in on and just kind of mention that I, in, in preparing for this conversation, I talked to a couple of singers um, and, you know, I cannot pretend to speak for the artists at all. I'm an administrator, I'm a man, an arts manager, but um, you know, there's a lot of planning involved for them. So I think everyone has to think, we all have to think about that. How does it fit into our life? The timing, the other part around that, uh, that I can't help anybody with is that you can plan all you want, but sometimes, uh, Getting pregnant doesn't happen the way you think it might, right? And kids change things in ways that you may never imagine, right? So those are things that you can't plan for and that we all have to be uh, open and flexible, I guess. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'll start by advice to people who are in a position of power because I think that's the most important thing. I think those of us who are in a position to do anything for artists have to anticipate and have to make a point of doing so. Um, this year at COT, actually, in the coming season, we have uh, three married couples performing over the course of the season, and in no case are they people that I uh, that we cast or that I cast because they were married to someone else. In fact, in some cases, actually, I think it helped me get a better casting than I otherwise could have could have scored. Um, but being aware that people are human beings, so that something like that can help. Uh, thinking about the kind of housing options you offer to artists, and to what extent you can help them find that housing, as opposed to just leaving it all on the artists themselves to do all of the legwork. It's always much easier if you have connections within the city you live in. And if you have the opportunities to offer resources with childcare or something else, um, to really offer that to people. I'm lucky my mom travels with me, so I have built-in childcare. But I think also to those of us who are doing this as performing artists, I think it's important to find opportunities to talk about this. And just like you guys are giving this platform uh, to everyone, I think we can 
uh, for a long time, there was also this thought that if you do have kids, you shouldn't, or you have a family, you shouldn't talk about it ever. And I felt that way at the beginning of my career, that I just shouldn't talk about it. I should only talk about my conducting. Um, and I, I think in a way that is a disservice to other people who have families or lives or who want to have families or lives. Because the most important thing is having a family, it's not like a medical condition or an illness to get pregnant, right? And have a child. And there's this view, like, it's almost like, oh, no, they have, uh, they got pregnant, so they, they can't do anything. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And no one would say, well, we're not going to hire you in case you get a stomach bug or in case you get the flu and you can't perform. But I, I, I mean, I don't know the statistics of this, but I can't imagine that having major complications statistically is that much more likely than like having the flu or having some other kind of medical or other thing come up. Or um, So that that's always uh, been really shocking to me that we see it as kind of like a, a, an illness, uh, which it's not. Um, but I, and I think it's changing the viewpoints. I think it's talking about it. I think it's being open about the fact that we're human beings and that we have families and that that in itself enriches our art. That makes us better at what we do. That makes us um, have a wider perspective um, in terms of the people we represent on stage, both as singers or as a conductor. I have to shape these people um, uh, in the drama of the music. And I think it's given me a much wider perspective. It's also given me a much better sense of myself. Because when you're just worrying about yourself and your art, uh, already this is a job that can lead to so many insecurities. It's so hard what we do emotionally and mentally. Um, and when you're just worrying about yourself and your art, uh, the kinds of... Um, questions and insecurities and worries and concerns that it brings up can be very counterproductive, as we all know, as performing artists. Because when you're up there, you can't be worrying about that. You have to just be worrying about making the music happen, right? Um, and I think having, for me anyway, having a kid also gave me a totally different perspective because if something goes wrong in a performance, it doesn't feel like it's the end of the world to me because it's the only thing I live for, right? It doesn't make me any less dedicated. In fact, maybe even more so, but it gives me a different kind of focus and it allows me to let go of anything extra that might get in the way of the music. So, Oliver, what have we learned? Well, I mean, everybody's story seems to be so different, but they all, I think what, what the takeaway for me is that singers are people who know how to, you know, negotiate a situation, improvise, and figure out what's going to work for them. And I, some of them had it easier than others, I have to say. But, you know, not that being a mother is in any way easy. You know, you you need a support system, you need to, you know, have health care, <laughs> obviously, and you need to have a husband who's willing to do their part. That's, I think, the, the common thread. All of them were so, you know, they all praised that their partners were, were a major part in helping them do both be mothers and be artists. Exactly. You know, for me, it was uh, the culture around these ideas is shifting. Thank you very much in part to these seven incredible women. Uh, I learned that it does, in fact, take a village to raise a child in the form of supportive partners and friends and management and most importantly, supportive arts organizations. Uh, and I also love that it, it it is possible if you want to do it. And if you do not want to do it, that is okay, too. 
Uh, there's no right or wrong way to do this. If you choose not to do this, this is also okay. And the thing that really rang true for me for all of these women is that the best tools they had at their disposal were honesty and and self-awareness about what they wanted, what they were capable of, and and when when they had to ask for help and put up limits and sometimes say no. Yeah. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface and I know that there are other types of mothers and family structures that we, we seem to all find the mothers that were married and had helpful families, you know, and uh, we didn't talk to single mothers. We didn't talk to people who maybe decided not to go through with it, you know, and, and, um, well, we don't know what these people's stories are, but, um, we are beginning this topic and I'm so glad that you wanted to do this. And I'm so glad that, you know, all of these people, these artists and administrators were so, so open about their experiences and that we want to hear from you all. Um, and we want to, you know, we want to know who you want us to talk to, uh, to go further into this topic, but I think it's a great start. And, uh, we do celebrate all of you mothers that are out there creating art and helping others create art. I agree, Oliver. I do recognize that that our sample uh, in this study did end up looking quite similar from from person to person. But this is this is one type of of mother in the world of mothers that are out there. Uh, and this is uh, you know episode one in a continuing series. We do want to hear from from other folks that have made this work or didn't think they could make this work. Uh, and, and continue this conversation because at the heart of this was the, the notion that we discovered that no one is talking about this. No one is talking about the role of your life outside of opera in the opera world and how it can fuel and inform the art that you create. Thanks for hanging out with me, George Cedarquist, this week on the show while the rest of the team takes a much-earned and well-deserved break. We have great plans coming your way in the new year. And of course, from the OBS to you, wherever you are, however you listen, may 2021 bring you some of the things that 2020 didn't bring. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. Twitter, Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. And, of course, this podcast version of our show available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Starting again next week, we are back on the Dallas Opera Network. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For your co-hosts, Weston Williams, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you stay up till midnight in your time zone. We're back with an all-new show next week. That is going to be Wednesday, January 6th at 9 p.m. Central on the Dallas Opera Network. More hot takes and more hangovers. Join us.